Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to this webinar. Uh, my name is Toby Webb, founder of Innovation Forum. I'm delighted to be chairing this discussion on Nestle's new report towards a forest positive future. Nestle made a commitment to end deforestation in its supply chain in 2010. Didn't quite get there by the end of 2020, but then who did? Um, and I think the company has made remarkable progress uh, since that Kit Kat commercial by Greenpeace uh, of 10 years ago, um, which uh, which I think uh, was one of the reasons many companies took actions in this space, although by no means the only one. A lot of progress has, has uh, taken place since then. And so in this discussion for the next hour, we're going to be discussing how we implement forward-looking approaches to deforestation risks, the all-important topic of land rights and community rights in forest conservation. It all starts with people. As the old cliche goes, culture eats strategy for breakfast, and that is a cliche which is not inaccurate. We're also going to be talking about that all-important idea of collective action and collaboration. And of course, if that wasn't enough to deal with, we have incentives, ecosystem services, and the very scary prospect of scope three carbon accounting, which is also an enormous opportunity to create that all important incentive, incentive to preserve forests and enhance land and drive restoration. Uh, whilst of course, enriching the communities who live in, a, in and amongst them. So we are delighted uh, to have this discussion. It's gonna be fascinating. We have here with us, Emily Coonan from Nestle, Bastian Sachet from the Earthworm Foundation, Benjamin Ware from Nestle, Andy White from the Rights and Resources Initiative and Fabiola Zerbini, who works for the Tropical Forest Alliance. So welcome to you all. The order of play will be that uh, I shall ask Benjamin to start off with a kind of introduction, high-level introduction on what's been learned and, and done over the last 10 years or so. Um, and then we're going to turn to Emily, who's going to talk through the forest positive strategy. And this is framed by a new report, which is just published today, which I would commend to you. We shall send you all a link to it uh, or a copy of it afterwards. I was just commending uh, the folks at Nestle before we started because it's actually readable. It doesn't have lots of pictures of smiling, diverse stakeholders and lots of corporate doublespeak. It's refreshingly honest and has um, does not shirk away from the challenges. Um, so that's going to be a useful read for you, I think, as a follow-up to this session. So after we hear from Emily um, on the forest positive strategy, we are then going to have a panel discussion uh, and we're going to hear from Andy and from Fabiola and Bastian before you can put your questions to the panel and to Benjamin and Emily as well. So please use the Q&A function here. Just a, a point of note, if you write a very long Castro-style epic essay in the chat, that might be very satisfying for you, but I will probably not have time to read it out no matter how brilliant it is. So if you could keep your questions or comments concise and to the point, and if it is just a statement, you can't really expect me to read them all out. So best to have a concise question that gets to the point. Uh, and is on topic. And then I should be able to put some of them to our panel. So there's a bit of guidance for you. Uh, and then at the end, I, I shall ask Benjamin to offer some concluding thoughts before we finish on the top of the hour in about 55 minutes time. So that's how it's going to work. Benjamin, let me turn over to you for an introduction and some reflections on where you've got to so far. Benjamin. Thank you, Toby. Um, you know, as you were saying, it's it's important that we re recall a bit the legacy and the past before we talk about the future. So I'd like to start, as you were saying, um, by recalling, you know, to everyone that back in 2010, our journey on, on forest, on the protection of this very precious ecosystem has started. 
we were one of the first companies basically to commit for um, deforestation, deforestation free supply chain. And, you know, in all honesty, at the beginning of it, even the definition of this uh, wording and vocabulary, vocabulary was a bit gray. Uh, for the first few years, it was really a moment of, uh, of truth in regards to how are we going to make that operationally. We were convinced that it was the right thing to do, um, of course, from a moral standpoint, from our consumers, but even more important from, for the long-term you know, business continuity um, of the industry and of Nestle in general. So it's very important to recall this aspect that what is good for the planet is actually good for the business. Um, so for a decade of work, we've basically started like anyone with Excel spreadsheet by you know, mapping supply chain origins, by defining you know, this concept of tiers from tier one to upstream through the cooperative, through the mills, giving names you know, to GPS coordinates, to these polygons that define the farms, um, you know, going on the ground, boots on the ground, assessing, deploying these auditing schemes, um, partnering with what we thought at that time would, would be alliance like NGOs and NPOs, but actually figuring out that a lot of those can be very good uh, friends and allies in tackling the challenges that happen at farm level. Because when we talk about deforestation, we talk about basically farmer resilience, survival in many cases. Um, then along the way, you know, technologies have kicked off and came, came up to our plate to help us uh, with Earthworm and Airbus bringing their, their innovation with Starlink, using and leveraging uh, blockchain and satellite services to speed off the verification of, uh, of this deforestation-free status. And, you know, we, we came then landing in 2019, 2020, with a trade-off to do, with a trade-off to say, um, do we really want to hit the 100% um, target that we made um, 10 years ago at um, any cost, and not only financial cost, but social cost in many cases for uh, farmers, smallholders around the world? Or do we take a moment to rethink this, rethink this strategy um, and maybe phase uh, a new journey. And at this moment, basically, we, we published um, our 90% um, performance landing against the deforestation-free uh, co commitment on our five commodities. Um, our CEO gave us you know, two more years to achieve this 100% to give extra care to the smallholders and to the farmers. But it was also the turning moment to basically uh, bring into the soup the climate agenda. And uh, now today, back uh, uh, on the basis of our net zero commitment um, to the UN Global Compact and the 1.5 degree pledge, we have basically upgraded our forest strategy, not only not to harm, but actually trying to do good. And the intent of this basically webinar is to give you the, the blockbusters of this doing good strategy, how we want to do that, um, how we're gonna enlarge the way we look at supply chain, go to landscape. And that's the, the, the subject of the presentation of Emily. Thank you, Best, uh, thank you, Benjamin. Um, Emily, so tell us what forest positive strategy looks like. 
So it's great to be here um, with you all to give you an overview of the strategy, which as Toby mentioned, is detailed um, in this report that has just been launched. Um, I'll just take you through quickly uh, an overview of that strategy. Um, but as Benjamin was mentioning, it is really important to understand the approach that we're taking going forward to understand where we've come from. Um, as Benjamin was mentioning, when we first started on our no deforestation journey in 2010, we didn't really know where our ingredients were coming from or what the risks were. And so we had to start really with the basics of supply chain mapping, assessments, and developing and deploying the right tools that could address those risks. And so what you see on the screen here is just a summary of what those tools are that we've been using to date. We call this a toolkit approach because we think it's really important to recognize that there is not a single tool, whether it's a certification scheme, a satellite monitoring system that on its own will deliver deforestation free supply chains. We have to use the right tools in combination with one another to be able to get there. And so that's what's shown here. What Benjamin was also mentioning is through this approach, um, we've arrived at the end of 2020 with 90% assessed deforestation-free supply chains. And so what you see on this screen and what you would see in the report is just that broken out by the five key ingredients that are included and broken out by the different tools that were used for the, the assessments. I think what you see here in the numbers that captures part of the picture, um, but it's also um, important to recognize the achievements that we've made as far as learning um, about our supply chains, learning about deforestation, what the drivers are, and also what the opportunities are to, to stop deforestation. And so I think through our work to date, particularly through that um, satellite monitoring that we've been using at scale since 2018, we've really got granular insights into what the drivers of deforestation are and what companies like Nestle can and should be doing to address it. In particular, I would say we've learned about how dynamic and complex those drivers are. And so one thing that's been a really key takeaway is that what caused deforestation in the past or where deforestation happened in the past is not an indicator of what will happen in the future. So we really need to have systems that are dynamic, adaptable, um, and engaged on the ground. So that's what brings us, I guess, to today, to the evolution from our no deforestation strategy to our forest positive strategy. Um, so I guess, what you see on the screen here is really that, that approach summarized in just three key pillars. Um, the first pillar here is, and I think people, maybe when you hear forest positive, you think that we're moving away from our, our past focus on deforestation free supply chains. But the first pillar here shows um, that we are still very much committed to deforestation-free supply chains. As Benjamin mentioned, um, we haven't hit the target in 2020, but um, we're aiming to get there for the end of 2022. That remains the foundation. But we know that alone is not going to get to the forest-positive future that we, we need to get to. And so we also have these two other pillars. The second one is that we're gonna be more active and forward looking about conservation of forest within our supply chains before the trees are lost. So that means that we will first assess where there's still risk of future deforestation and forest degradation, and then we'll invest in conservation and restoration in those areas. 
And to kick that off, we've um, announced that we're committed to planting 200 million trees by 2030. Now, the third pillar is about investing in sustainable landscapes where our ingredients come from. Uh, our past ways of working were really focused on sites in our supply chains, so the farms or the mills, um, and looking at what the impact of those individual sites were on forests. Um, but now we really understand and appreciate the importance of viewing those sites as an integral part of, a, of an overall production landscape. And we have to work to ensure that agriculture production, forest protection, and respect for human rights can all coexist in those landscapes. One thing that's really um, important in our, our recognition and kind of the shifting mindset that we have is also that we recognize the central role that there is for the inclusion of indigenous peoples um, and local community rights in assessing and addressing uh, forest risk. So that's also going to be a central component across all three pillars of this strategy. And then all of that is underpinned by advocacy and transparency that's needed to create the right enabling environment for the broader change. So I think we could spend probably a few days going into detail on all of that. Um, I just have 10 minutes here to give you the summary. Um, so I just wanna highlight a few things in particular about how um, our ways of working will be different. So on that second pillar that I mentioned about um, active conservation and restoration, one of the tools that we're gonna be using um, is a forest footprint. Uh, so this is a tool or a methodology that we initially piloted last year in Aceh, Indonesia around our palm oil supply chains. And what this does is it maps areas of standing forests, peatlands and customary rights um, that overlap with sites that could be in our supply chain or that are nearby those sites where expansion could take place in the future. And so you see some of the key numbers on the screen here. So just around our palm supply chains uh, in Aceh, there's almost 90,000 hectares of forest and peatland uh, and customary lands that are actually within palm oil concessions that could be in our supply chains in the future. And then if you look at the area just outside of concessions that could be um, suitable for future palm oil expansion, there's almost one and a half million hectares that were identified. So you can see through this that by using the same tools, the supply chain mapping, the satellite monitoring that we've used in the past to detect deforestation after it happened, we can now use them to actually um, be more forward looking and identify areas where protective measures are needed and then invest in the conservation and restoration in those areas. So we did this pilot um, last year. We're expanding to more areas this year um, and we'll take this global and across commodities uh, for, different, uh, for the key uh, forest frontier areas by 2023. The next aspect that I wanted to highlight is around um, pillar three, the sustainable landscapes pillar. Um, and just to illustrate what we mean by this, um, here we have an example of uh, the Cavalry Forest in the Ivory Coast. And this is a forest that's near an area where Nestle gets cocoa from. It's a forest that's pretty well preserved, um, but it is under threat of encroachment from cocoa cultivation, from gold mining, et cetera. And so Nestle recognized that if nothing was done about this, um, this forest, it would likely be cleared um, to grow crops or for mining, and that would lose really important biodiversity and carbon stocks. 
Um, and so for that reason, Nestle invested two and a half million Swiss francs um, to finance a three-year project um, that's implemented by the Cote d'Ivoire Forest Agency, SOTIFOR, uh, and Earthworm Foundation, who's here today, um, that's aimed at really protecting this forest through a landscape approach. And this means combining some uh, critical different activities, including restoring degraded areas, protecting the remaining forests, and increasing the resilience uh, and improving livelihoods for cocoa farmers. So in this landscape, um, forest conservation, land regeneration, and farmer resilience are completely interlinked challenges. And that's actually the case in, in many of the landscapes that we source from. So it's really important that we take these holistic approaches at a jurisdictional level to protect forests. Um, it, by 2023, we'll be investing in at least 15 landscape initiatives like this one. So we know that, that we need to shift our own approach um, with how we engage our supply chains, how we engage the sourcing landscapes, um, where we get ingredients from. from <laughs> um, but we know that actually to fully achieve the forest positive vision that we've laid out here, we really have to also support the development of the enabling environment that removes deforestation from commodity producing landscapes. Um, so we are also committed to uh, using our stakeholder engagement work, our advocacy to do that, and particularly focusing on the topics that you see here on the screen, which we've identified as priorities. So this is around supply chain transparency, due diligence legislation, smallholder farmer uh, inclusion, producer country engagement, and private sector collaboration with um, other tiers of our supply chains and across industries. So I'll just end um, with this slide um, to say that we, we know we do not have all the answers at this time. It's, it's similar to what Benjamin mentioned about when we initially made our no deforestation commitment. We know that we need to still develop the tools. We have a lot of learning to happen, but what we do know, <clears throat> sorry, is that we have to evolve the approach that we're taking. We have to have more organizations um, joining us in this mindset shift to be more forward looking about protecting forests, keeping them standing, about recognizing how interconnected different activities are within the same landscape, um, such as agriculture and forest conservation, and recognizing that livelihoods and human rights are absolutely central to forest positive, a forest positive future. So what you see on this screen, and I, I won't read it all out to you, is some of the key milestones that we're working towards today for our forest positive strategy as part of our broader climate pledge. Um, so getting to reduce our emissions by 20% by 2025, having them by 2050. Um, you'll also see on here that by the end of this year, we'll finalize our um, operational plan for this strategy. So there's more details coming. Um, ultimately, I think the, the key point is that to reach net zero, we have to ensure how we produce uh, and grow our food conserves and restores forests. And, and we know that to do that, there is this mindset shift that is needed. So I think um, this is an exciting moment for us. The voices on the panel here represent some of the, those really key topics and challenges and approaches that we, we need to be embracing as we move forward. Um, and we hope that many of you who are here listening to this today will ultimately join us in that journey. So I'll hand it back to you, Toby. 
Thank you, Emily. Um, let me turn first to Andy White from the Rights and Resources Initiative. So, Andy, uh, briefly tell us what RRI is, and then I'd love to know what you thought of the report, having a couple of having had a couple of days to read it. And then, thirdly, and most importantly, what has all this got to do with land rights? So, Andy, over to you. Okay. Well, thank you, Toby, and thank you, Benjamin, and Emily, and and Barbara, and all the colleagues at uh, Nestle for this invitation and this uh, organizing this 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 meeting. Um, well, what does RRI do? RRI is a is a coalition of organizations that are dedicated to uh, advancing the recognition of indigenous peoples' community uh, land rights, uh, and particularly women within those communities, and ensuring everyone has kind of equal rights uh, and roles in and and governing their lands. and And uh, so um, that's who we are. We're a bunch of organizations, and I represent the Secretariat. Um, uh, that, that helps uh, foster, uh, you know, work around the world on, on this front. Um, a couple impressions uh, reading the report. Um, first of all, it's just, well, one, uh, I can't believe it's been 10 years. I mean, for those who have been around, what have we, it's been amazing that it's, a, it's already been 10 years. But, but the first, um, but other than that, was just the impressed with the seriousness of the effort by, by Nestle. And congratulations to all of you who've been toiling away uh, doing this, all these tools, all these meetings. The second was that this forest positive view that Emily just described, it's not just tree positive and it's not just forest classic biophysical positive. It's a different concept of forest. It's forest which includes people, right? Toby, you're surrounded by trees. Uh, if you're a person in the forest, you have some effect on that forest. That forest has some effect on you. And right now, just looking at the KPIs that Emily just presented are still uh, technical, biophysical. So I think that's um, just, uh, off the top of my head. That's one thing to think about going forward. We need social KPIs as well as biophysical KPIs uh, to uh, advance this, this um, forest positive view. The second related to that is that this is a major shift. This is from a, a do no harm uh, risk management perspective um, to a do good and kind of more development perspective. And it's just breathtaking and to be congratulated. But um, and uh, uh, and it does mean that um, it, it require embracing the, the social and the, the land rights, as you said. The other, the other impression I had reading through the report was, um, you know, where's, where's Nestle's work on land rights in this front? Where's uh, this interlocking group that Nestle co-founded in 2013 and has been actively working behind the scenes with other companies uh, and NGOs host, co-hosted by uh, RRI to figure out how to operationalize the VGGTs? And I was, it was surprising for me to read this story and not see, you know, in, in, in thinking about what happened, um, why, what explains that? I thought, okay, maybe it's an over-exuberant interpretation of the Chatham House rule. Um, but then I realized it's, it's silos. There's a silo within Nestle and a silo within our, that was dealing with the land rights. And there's another silo that was dealing with forests. And I think in some ways, uh, hopefully this will, that's a, the report we're reading is a, is a report of the past and the report that on the next 10 years will look very different. That has an integrated positive view 
of people and um, and rights and, and force. So a couple, those are a couple of impressions and some recommendations about how to achieve this positive and integrated uh, view of Nestle's role and responsibility, not only Nestle's, that's what I think is so particularly positive about this is Nestle is eager to learn and eager, eager to use its uh, political and financial capital. But three things seem to me, uh, and my colleague uh, Bryson Ogden, who uh, is leading the interlocking group uh, on this, think we, we think are particularly important to, to going forward. One is to really shift um, more towards this community-based monitoring and, in, and engagement. You're starting down that path already, but uh, we love satellites. Great maps are an important tool for some things, but nothing, as Toby, you said in your, your opening remarks, um, uh, you know, culture, people, voices, uh, and recognizing that they have our legitimate citizens in their own spaces and talking to them directly. In Mon that, that will be, I think, very Im important, that, that sensitivity and understanding and embracing and supporting them get their rights recognized. Secondly, is using Nestle's leverage uh, to get governments to do more on the land rights front. I think that's consistent with the, the uh, pillar two what, in what Emily just presented, but uh, many governments are resistant. Some governments are, are open to this, doing more on the land rights front. Nestle, uh, in some places we know, has encouraged governments. Much, much more needs to be done on that front. As you said, Toby, uh, secure land rights is not only the cornerstone of sustainable land use and production, but it's also the cornerstone of governance and government and democracy. Uh, so uh, it, it, if we want sustainable landscapes and, and achieving these goals, we have to have much more progress on that front and Nestle and others can do, can do much more. We're, we're pleased that Nestle uh, has gotten this on the attention of the Consumer Goods Forum. So again, Nestle is leading many companies in this space, but much, much more can be done. And the third point I'll raise is that uh, Nestle, uh, along with others, can do much more in figuring out and developing the innovations to leverage more finance for securing land rights. Like uh, one one thousandth of all the climate, uh, all the ODA, overseas development assistance and climate change over the last 10 years, one one thousandth has gone into securing land rights. That's just an abominable shame. And we're, we're nowhere close to the billions that are needed to map and register and help communities talk to each other and figure this out. We need to crack this nut and we need Nestle and colleagues to figure out how to do it. And I'll end by just saying that uh, one of the new initiatives that Nestle's involved is, I think, is indicative of both the potential and the, the challenge. And that is this LEAF initiative. Well, LEAF is the Coalition of Lowering Emissions Through Forest, um, forest Finance, uh, Through Forest, and uh, there's associated things with. But right now, LEAF is designed in this art uh, registry to, to net zero, is basically it it is designed to incentivize governments to take land rights from carbon rights from local people. With a few tweaks, it can be uh, incentivized governments to recognize land rights. Um, and that, so as currently designed, it looks more like the past. Uh, with some tweaks, it can look like the future and be forest positive and consistent with the rest of the goal. So uh, I think that, uh, I hope that Nestle can bring that, this forest positive view an integrated view, people and trees, KPIs that are social and biophysical uh, 
to its own work and to the rest of the, the private sector and governments where, it's, where it operates. So uh, congratulations again. I hope you're all, you and Nestle are toasting yourselves uh, tonight somewhere along Lac La Mer or wherever you are in the world, um, not only for what you've done in the past 10 years, but even more so about what you're starting uh, today and, and starting. The next 10 years will look very different. I'm looking forward to that. So uh, celebrate tonight uh, with, with what you, about what you've started. Thank you. Thank you, Andy, and some important challenges there. And um, I'll ask Benjamin, perhaps at the end, to offer um, some final thoughts on, on the, um, the challenges ahead. Because as you say, Andy, moving on to the front foot, as opposed to being on the back foot, um, means you open up a whole lot of doors that a lot of business people would rather have remained shut in the past, such as engaging in land tenure. You know, the classic boardroom response is, what business is that of ours? And if you look at um, past initiatives and company engagements, it, it's you know it can end quite badly if you're not careful historically. So the question is, what are the coalitions that will drive this this forward? Because rights being the fundamental when it comes to the carbon forests or any aspect of sustainable development. So thank you. We've got lots of questions in the chat, so I'm going to move on quickly. Fabiola, uh, lovely to to see you. Thank you for coming. TFA has a very unique position, sitting in the middle of. Uh, of governments and, and, their, and their development agencies and business and, of course, the active NGO community and, of course, Indigenous communities. So what are your brief thoughts on the report and, and uh, what would you like to see happening to take forward the ideas in this report further? Fabiola. Thank you. Thanks, Toby. Thanks, everybody. Thanks a lot for the invitation. Are you hearing me well? Yeah? Okay, let's go. So I think... Uh, uh, when I was reading the report, I was also, in some way, reading the history of TFA. You know, I started to work at TFA in 2015, was in the middle of the last decade, you know, and the, the decade that we used to call like the zero deforestation or the free deforestation decade. You know. And uh, for the TFA theory of change, the demand side uh, uh, was and is, is, you know, is still crucial as a key factor to really stop the deforestation associated with the commodities production. You know. And as soon as we, we, we got close to 2020, you know, we realized together that the theory of change needed to be revised. You know. uh, demand side is key. And uh, what we are witnessing here today is the advancement that uh, uh, only one company like Nestlé could really achieve. And this is remarkable. You know, this is very important. Many other companies also have many other advancements and we need to, to state you know, and to, to remark it. You know. But we, we, we know that is not enough. You know. And uh, um, the, the deforestation rate is increasing. I'm based in Brazil. So the numbers here are increasing almost each day. No, um, and uh, uh, we know that there are many factors that are driving this, this, this situation, political or ideological orientation, social inequality, illegality, conflicts, lines, conflicts. There's so much and there's a huge impact on the deforestation, polarization, agribusiness in one side, environmentalism in another side, leakage. So many, many, many things <laughs> came to the, to the arena, no, to the question. And uh, we, I think we saw the complexity no, of, the, of the problem. The, the, the complexity of the challenge appeared as never. Uh, and, and, and suddenly in the beginning of this decade, we do have a, a, a social and economical, a healthy, a public Fabiola, I'm sorry, we lost uh, your audio volume has plummeted. Could you perhaps make some kind of adjustment? You were very good, very loud, and now it's gone very quiet. Could you try and adjust that? Sorry. 
let's try again. Okay, I'm, I'm also almost there. So I think now to, to, the theory of change must be revised. No, and this is exactly what, what we saw uh, in, in Nestle report. No, uh, there's no way to move forward on a free deforestation agenda without really connecting the social inequality, human rights and food security perspectives. There's no way to move forward alone. Uh, the transition will cost a lot. The, the social and environmental costs needs to be internalized by the supply chain. And, and no one company can do that. Not, not only the producers, but only the consumers. And other actors need to be also involved in the shared cost model, like the finance sector, the governments. Um, I think there's no way to, to, to really go uh, without a cross-sectoral multi-stakeholder perspective. Now, the landscape is the, is the place where all of this will land uh, and really impact. Uh, and carbon neutrality became the new common target, the new common goal. So we, we need to, in some way, look to all of this and try to combine this in an agenda that makes sense. We do have good examples on the ground. I'm from Latin America. I will bring some examples that it's from my region, but for sure that all over the world we do have this bottom-top initiatives like the Cocoa Amazon region you know, that came from the local alliances around the cocoa production, trying to position in a new product to the world based on sustainability and social and human rights. Um, like concrete projects like in Maranhão, you know, soy producers will receive in the next month uh, for the biodiversity, water, and the carbon that they are stocking, that they are providing as environmental services, as a way also to guarantee that they will be committed to not deforest, you know, even if it's legally uh, allowed to, to do that. Many other examples. For sure that this is a very, very a collective journey that we need to go together. Emily said that, and I think all of us are uh, uh, agree you know, uh, with that. Nestlé showed us that the last decade, uh, even with other different kind of challenge, but big as well. No, uh, you got it. No, Nestle got it to 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 arrive where we are and to arrive to 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 the perspective that Nestle and others need to keep the vanguard approach, the leadership approach, and count on the mood stakeholders platform like us to really guarantee that it will be done in a way that 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 will impact. So let's be inspired, but let's be. Uh, uh, again, no, I think it's uh, 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 trending no, to, to, to go to a new decade and a new kind of challenge, but for sure that uh, there's no way to, to back. No, so I think that this is, uh, we are here at this moment exactly celebrating something, but being able to, to start and the next decade have another celebration like that. Thank you. Thanks very much. And the interest of time, because we have now 31 excellent questions. I'm going to move on. Um, by the way, well done, audience. I mean, this is the 31 best set of questions I've seen in the last year and a half anywhere. Um, keep them coming. We can't get through all of them, but we should definitely archive them because I'm sure the folks at Nestle will be taking them away and thinking hard about them. Uh, we'll come to them in a minute. Before that, Bastian, over to you. Um, I remember 10 years ago being with you and Scott Poynton and others when, when I remember Scott saying, wow, the company's actually serious about this. They really are set to change. And I'm so pleased that Scott was right. Um, so talk us through your perceptions of the journey, the report, and, partic and in particular, what comes next. Bastian. Thanks, Toby. And hi, everyone. Very happy to be here with you. Yeah, 10 years of life have gone by and a lot of work uh, behind the scenes. Uh, today, I'm not going to be so objective because uh, we've been very much part of the journey since the beginning, alongside with uh, Emily, Benjamin, and, and, and other people within Nestle. 
I just would like to start with an anecdote, um, an example, a concrete example, because we see a lot of targets, we see a lot of KPIs, and but there is there are key stories behind it. Uh, in 2014, we engaged a company called Grupo Palmas in Peru, uh, who was one of Nestle's suppliers because we were engaging all the suppliers. And they had a big piece of forest uh, in the Peruvian Amazon to be cleared, to be planted with palm. And, uh, and the local population wanted it cleared. They wanted the jobs, they wanted everything associated to it. And there was a big dilemma and a big discussion that took place between the suppliers and Nestle to say, what do we do? And, uh, and Nestle said, look, we, if, if we are going to continue doing business together, you need to keep that forest standing. And eventually, after a lot of discussions and work, the, the supplier agreed. Uh, is now one of the leading sustainability um, commitment in, uh, around palm in Peru. And this forest is standing. And it asks the question, what do we do with it going forward? Is it going to be there for the long term? So it, it was already putting on the table, what does forest positive means? And how do, we, how do we make sure that this forest stays standing? And there's a lot of questions, as Andy mentioned, that are linked to, um, that are linked to uh, human rights, uh, development opportunities, at the end of the day, we come back to people. So what I wanted, what, what I wanted to, to, to say is that all this journey has been driven by people and is going to be driven by people at the end. So driven by people first within Nestle, I think we should not forget that the commitment starts from the top, but then it's the work of the whole company to engage and to basically learn about all this, this complexity. And I think the learning curve over the 10 years has been about understanding the supply chain, understanding the complexity, and diving into it. And I think many companies don't do that work because it's, it's costly and it takes time. And I, I want to take the hat off for, for, to Nestle for having done that. It's about being humble as well, because at the end of the day, there is no, um, there is no made solution. So that engagement is about listening to what the supplier has to say, co-designing and working with them. So, you know, within Nestle, the people within Nestle, the people within suppliers. So this journey is only done with the suppliers. And I remember the work we did, we done very early on with Golden Agri Resources, engaging and co-developing the high carbon stock methodology, which is now widely used, but which helped uh, define what was in practice deforestation and what wasn't deforestation. I think we had to, to create the tools as we went. And that's, that uh, needed a lot of innovation, a lot of engagement. And last but not least, but engagement with farmers and communities, which is what we are really into now, uh, which is about figuring out how, what's the value proposition for them, as, as, as it's not always clear when you, when you, if you come with just a forest angle. So what we've learned is that this work of engaging people and mobilizing different communities around the world and along the supply chain in this journey it's created uh, a different ecosystem, which I think is very, uh, which shifts the landscapes globally because it has driven decommoditization, which means more stable supply chains. And I think without that, it's very difficult to build a forest positive future. So that step was very important because eventually it is about recognizing who is on the other end of the supply chain and that person exists. It's not just a ton of pine oil or a ton of soil. It's a farmer from that place producing things and raw materials in, in this way. And that stability is what we can build on to preserve forest in the long term and to create this forest positive future. Um, what it, supply chains have been very extractive over the last years of human and natural capital. And I think this move that Nestle is making towards forest positive forests 
is just the the opening of of a new journey that uh, that calls for regenerating that capital. And what I'm very happy to see is that it's not just words because it's been announced that significant resources are going to be put on the table are being put on the table to regenerate those ecosystems because it will need resources. I think Fab Fabiola mentioned it. We'll need a hell of a lot of resources. And the fact that Nestle is pioneering that for me is, is something very positive. I just want to, uh, so that we've got time for questions and I know Toby will we, we like that. Um, we, we, we've got some key challenges that we, we will face. The first is learning to collaborate more with others. I think uh, in corporates, there's always naturally ego and competition. And I think uh, the fact that you, you can lead also, you know, is about you going and following what you want to do, but also bringing the, the other onto the journey. And I think that is the chain reaction that can be triggered in this way that, that, that will drive change. So the second big challenge that I see is that the, 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 time, the tempo of nature, the tempo of behaviors and communities is different than the tempo of investors, KPIs, and, 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 and decision makers in corporates. And there is a huge tension that exists in our world today between the desire to go fast and, and the time it takes to transform. And, and I think it's not, that tension is very, uh, is something that we have to recognize and grapple with, uh, which means that it's, it's a shared approach between top-down, but also that gives the time for co-design and the time for engagement. At the end of the day, the solutions will work if the engagement and the co-design with communities, with farmers is done well. That, so that the solutions that are developed are fully owned. And I do think that uh, uh, coupling this strong drive and ambition with that ability to create a space is going to be uh, a, a good challenge for the future. So thrilled to see the results, very uh, optimistic and confident about the fact that the same drive, if not more, is going to open the next 10 years. And uh, yeah, looking forward to the journey. Thanks very much. Um, so many great questions here. Uh, Benjamin's been working very hard trying to reply to some of them. Thank you, Benjamin. Uh, I'm going to pick a couple of them. I'm going to ask a quick question for Bastian and then ask Emily to offer some clarification on Palm because there are lots of questions about where Palm sits in your report. Bastian, a quick question for you. When you hear about this headlong rush towards uh, addressing carbon in scope three and supply chain. And then you hear about the idea of ecosystem services payments for farmers, which has been a dream we've all had for you know a decade or more. How do we create that extra incentive? Do you sometimes get a bit concerned about this headlong rush towards carbon uh, and the question of who owns what? Because there seems to be an awful lot of work that needs to be done very quickly to make that bit work. First of all, I welcome it because it puts the it puts the focus on soils and forests, which has not necessarily been the case in such a fashion in the past. So now the whole investors community of this world is looking at soils and forests, thinking they are precious. We need to regenerate them. We need to protect them. So the first, my first reaction is to welcome it. The second reaction is to say, let's be careful in in not looking at a complex system with just one lens. Carbon is one element of the whole thing. It's, it's a hook, it's an opportunity to get more engaged into the problem, to get more involved into the problems. So the, the, I think the responsibility that companies have, and this is very much what we are already discussing with Nestle, is to make sure that this is done in the right way, which, which is, as I said, in collaboration with farmers, so that the value proposition is not just one for the downstream, where 
we can count the tons of carbon and say we're doing well. It's something that lasts and is a real value proposition for the upstream. And so, yes, all, all sorts of incentives needs to be, you know, will be created, but in co-design, which means taking the time to work and to listen on the ground. And I think that's that's probably the key and the big challenge for all of us here to, to, to figure out how to create that space and show up the good examples. Yes, you can certainly see attention being focused on carbon justice for communities and smallholders in the coming years, can't you? Um, so, Emily, um, quick uh, turn to you to talk about the palm oil questions we see. Just perhaps offer a bit of clarification or explanation on those as, as best you can. Emily. Okay, and I'm trying to quickly read them. So this is about the the performance at the end of 2020, right, Toby? Yes, there's a few here uh, around Palm. Yeah. Um, just just kind of asking really um, kind of where it sits and, and uh, what the challenges are. Yeah, absolutely. So at the end of 2020, we were at 70% assessed as deforestation free. Um, I think there's some additional complexity in Palm compared with other supply chains. One is that um, every Palm sourcing origin that we have has a, a risk of deforestation in, in the general region. And so we do need to look at each and every point in the origin. Um, another um, kind of factor is that most palm oil supply chains include smallholders. Uh, and so the challenge that Benjamin mentioned about this trade-off between um, getting quickly to deforestation free and addressing livelihoods means that each and every uh, in palm ingredient that we are sourcing, we're having to map plantations and smallholders and do that analysis um, with our satellite monitoring systems and our supplier engagement about what um, the deforestation free status is. And so I think that just um, is reflected in the score that it's taking a bit longer, but we are confident of being able to get there uh, by the end of 2022. Thank you. Um, Benjamin, did you want to respond to Andy on the Interlaken Group point? That seemed uh, worthy of clarification. Yeah. And first of all, I would just um, acknowledge those points in saying that today, I mean, we mainly talk about environmental sustainability, but uh, we all know that none of those things happen without people. And actually the solutions for environmental um, uh, sustainability challenges uh, lays down with the social agenda that we execute and we operationalize. So uh, point taken and you know, no excuse to be given, no, uh, uh, no argument to open. I think it's very fair to say that we need to break these silos. We actually need also to give greater visibility on what we have done on our human rights agenda and on the FPIC, the land rights. Um, we've deployed a number of tools to give a voice to farm workers. Um, so not only to take care about the farmers, but also the farm workers that are on these lands. So I think uh, it's an excellent suggestion to break these silos and to come, you know, in, in hopefully in not 10 years, but in a few years with a progress report that will uh, um, give the full lens of, of people, planet and profit because this, the economical viability of these farmers is also, you know, the elephant in the room is everybody needs to make a living. Everybody needs to make a margin. Uh, you know, we have no right to say these communities needs to continue to uh, barely survive or don't have the, the documentations or the paper for the land. 
uh, we've been working with a, a few of our uh, um, partners to, to help on that. So, I mean, to make it short, you've said two minutes max, uh, point taken and very fair to say, and we will do so. Thank you. Um, yeah, lots of great questions here. I mean, Yuka has, from Wageningen has a really great question, which any of you could comment on. Um, it, it really about how farmers, how can they learn an, a living income while they're expected to protect the forest? Can they be incentivized enough to become forest stewards and earning a decent income at the same time. And I think that encapsulates the, the multifaceted challenge we have here. Forest Positive seems to me to be encouraging really a framework to enhance sustainable rural development. And whether that's and that's whether that's multiple income streams for farmers or whether it's the, the potential for ecosystem services, it's got to be that mixed approach and whether that might include land consolidation uh, and so on. And, and, and tenure, what, what are the issues there? There's an awful lot to unpack there. But I wondered if any of you wanted to take on uh, Yoka's point about how we get there. Um, Benjamin, <laughs> let me turn to you first on that one. Yeah, I'm happy to take that. So first of all, definitely, I mean, the conversation started today on this this willingness to reward for environmental services and to nurture and to boost nature in the landscape where we are sourcing from. Um, there is definitely a need both for the farmers to... Um, to, to, to establish really um, its PNL of a farm, what, are the, what is the revenue by a crop that is growing uh, so that he can really professionalize the way he discuss with the client. But on our side, we have also a duty. We need to move away from this monocrop buying model where we buy only palm, we buy only coconut, we buy only coffee. Basically, this forest positive agenda is nurturing the need for companies like us to buy multi-crop and to have a buyer going to the supply chain nodes and to say, I'm keen to buy a coconut that grows to coffee from the same farms. And I think if we have this top-down coming from the clients, you know, pulling for agroforestry, for multi-crop um, um, production at farm level, and then also a, a wake-up moment from the farmer communities that they have to do two things. They have to federate themselves. It's a bit unpolitical what I'm saying, but they have to federate themselves, get together, and point to really master the, the economics of their farms. And uh, that was one of the learning of the, of the last 10 years. A lot of these farmers, the first thing that they ask us when we tell them, what would you like from us? They say, could you please help me to establish my business plan and not only you know, the paperwork of the farms, documentation, I think like this. So that's what we are going to do even more in the 10 years to come. Thank you. Um, Andy, Bastian, let me bring you in a second. Andy, a quick question for you on that. Um, I'm not saying that, that you or your organization, organization has this view, but there's a perception that some in the NGO community have this, you know, this idea of the sort of romantic smallholder on their, on their noble plot of land. But in, the, in reality, of course, some of those plots of land, are, well, most of them are unviable and some of them are getting smaller. So is there a need in the, in the, in the community and I, that you work in, and I know it's a disparate set of views, to recognize the potential for consolidation in some way, shape or form done in a just way that could actually help drive this agenda that we all want to happen, i.e. better tenure, access to finance, ecosystem services? Or is there still a challenge in your network of, of, of getting to that point, Andy? Yeah, good. Um, no. Um, <laughs> I think it, 
the the issue is is that it starts with land rights. Um, and and there are another there was another question about what's the difference between rights uh, laborers and producers in in the in coffee. I think it was in Ghana. No, it was Coco in Ghana. Um, no, it, it all starts with land rights. I mean, Toby, I don't know whether you bought that land where you're sitting, that little bit of forest, or whether you're renting, or it's an Airbnb, or um, but there's lots of fragmentation. Fragmentation is not the issue. It's issue is clarifying land rights and making sure the rights holders have options. And if they don't have options about how to use that space, very difficult for them to know and have options about what to produce, to invest in it, to leverage the capital, to make sure their, their labor is valued, for them to engage the local government. So um, a lot of production and economic development democracy starts with secure land rights. Not everything, but uh, let local people figure it out. Let's not top down try to design it and either force people to aggregate or encourage people to disaggregate. Um, as force around the world uh, demonstrate there's a lot of tenure options. What's most essential uh, is making sure that uh, the rights holders have the, the knowledge and political space for their voices to be heard in the government system. Yeah, and of course, is equally important is that education piece about what the opportunities are for them should they decide to take one, one option or another. And that's absolutely key, isn't it? Of course, uh, Bastian, let me, we're almost out of time. We've got about five minutes left. And I have a question for you, Fabiola, uh, about government engagement. But before that, uh, Bastian, you had something you wanted to add. Yeah, very quickly, I, I don't think ecosystem services or carbon is a magic stick. I think the, what will work is to build on the, the supply chain that have been rebuilt. The reconnection has been created to the farmers or is being recreated. And that reconnection allows, is a channel for doing many, many things, including the land rights, including the, 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 the investment, including extension services and technical support. All of this will be a, a mix of things. Farmers don't want to be assisted to be, you know, maintained in a state of underdevelopment so that the forest can be standing. It's not going to work. So it's really about lifting first the farmers, the forest will follow. Thank you. Fabiola, you, are you still with us? Your video is, is off. I just want to make sure you're, you're here before I ask you, your question. Oh, there you are. You're, you're here yeah. twice. So good she's here twice. Uh, Fabiola, um, what have you learned with TFA, with your engagement with governments, about ways in which companies like Nestle can work effectively in the political frameworks to do this? We all remember the lessons of IPOP, the Indonesian palm oil pledge, and history is littered with the corpses of initiatives that haven't done politi proper political economy analysis of, the, uh, of what they're getting into effectively. And of course, we see resource and agriculture nationalism everywhere in the world, not least in, in your home country. So um, how, what's your advice to Nestle on how they kind of can navigate the, the political minefields here to try and achieve some of these objectives more effectively? Hi, thanks, Toby. Well, not easy at all, not only one minister, no, for that, because each government and, and each mandate, no, has a different approach and needs to be considered. And uh, so any kind of governmental engagement needs to be very flexible uh, uh, and, and very strategically oriented, no, to, to really guarantee that the results will be there. But first, for, on the positive side, like the public-private partnership, it's, it's, it's real now at this time. Now. And uh, so uh, how to really collaborate on some positive agendas, combining the rural credit that some countries does have 
huge amount of money you know, to, to, to invest and to, to the, the, their own agribusiness sector, how to combine the private sector funds to guarantee that we will then move forward. So I think this is the not the easy piece, but it's the, the, the one that I think we do have many good examples and, and uh, we, we can evolve a lot. We can uh, do a little uh, much more on that. But the, the problem is on the structuring actions, like land regularization, common and control. These are normal uh, uh, role. Uh, it, this it needs to be done normally by the government. It needs to be paid by the government. No, this is kind of what we call like the structuring actions. And uh, I think the private sector uh, really, really needs uh, to understand how to collaborate with the governments, how and when to ask how and when to collaborate. I think this, this is a key, key balance. Now, also on these structuring pieces, because without this, without land regularization, without the, 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 a good common control in place, uh, um, unfortunately, our, our actions and, and good, good uh, uh, examples, as we are seeing today, you know, will not uh, uh, be impactful or meaningful enough. So I think this is, uh, but needs to be, understood and considered in case by case um, and really well supported and as collective as possible. No, really, really formed by the local private sector, but uh, the global private sector does have a huge role and I do have huge expectations no, on that also to influence a little bit more my country uh, towards a more forest positive agenda as well. <laughs> Let's hope so. <laughs> Absolutely. So um, a closing question for you to reflect on, Benjamin. Perhaps you can build this into your closing remarks. We're almost at the top of the hour. So uh, Anita Neville asks, uh, on reflection, would Nestle have changed anything in terms of where it invested effort in terms of focus on monitoring versus focus on livelihoods slash community engagement? This is the kind of back foot, front foot question, isn't it, to avoid deforestation? I'm, I thought that would be quite a nice question to end on, as maybe you'd like to build that and answer that into your, into your closing remark. Exactly. So I think, I mean, first of all, I feel a bit like back in 2010, uh, we are in a moment of a crossroad. We know where, where we want to go with the forest positive, positive strategy with our net zero pledge. Um, we know some of the tools that we're going to use, um, you know, on, on this road, but we don't know all of them. So, um, you know, one of the, the things that we wanted to tease with this announcement is uh, to search and to get some innovations coming to us as we, as we hunt for them as well in our forest positive strategy. Maybe to, to the comment you've just made, you know, one of the lessons that you've we've made over the last 10 years is let's not try only to police and control but let's try really to boost and incentivize. Um, this has a much, uh, a much bigger effect uh, long-term. So that's definitely the change versus the past. We are embracing a strategy which is much more about engagement, uh, rewarding, incentivizing, uh, than policing, controlling, monitoring every minute. So um, the last uh, the last comment is, as usual, you know, there is no way we can do that alone. So we need not only you know our peers and our competitors and the industry in general to do that, but we need everyone in the in the value chain to embrace the same strategy and and basically go for this space. Thank you. Thanks very much, Benjamin. We're going to finish up now. I'm. We will be continuing this conversation as well, Nestle, uh, over many years to come. We have our, our Landscapes and Commodities Forum, which takes place 
at the end of November, early December, and we'll be discussing all this in much greater detail there. I mean, what we're talking about here is the focus of, of pretty much that entire conference for over three days. So we would be delighted if you would join us for that. I've posted a link to the report down there uh, in the chat. I've also posted uh, something that we're working on, which is our Action Research Coalition, to look at exactly these questions. We've been working with Nestle and GIZ, the German Development Initiative, uh, Golden Agri and others on this. And the next iteration of that proposes an action research approach so that we can try and get better answers to, to these growing lists of questions. So we're really enthused about um, the change in paradigm from the back foot to the front foot. Looking forward to continuing the conversation. You will all get a link uh, to listen to this again uh, and you'll get a, a link to the report as well. I urge you to read it. It's commendable. But I think we uh, would, would all agree that's the we're at the beginning of their journey, 10 years on, <laughs> because now we know much more about what we have to do. And as somebody once said, um, better to tell someone something they can do than something they can't do. And that applies to my five-year-old son as much as it does to uh, socioeconomic development theory. <laughs> and, uh, and I think that's a, a good point to close on. So thank you all for joining us. It's been a fantastic discussion. Uh, we plan to continue this uh, and we will be in touch. In the meantime, thank you so much to Nestle and the, the speakers for joining us for the last hour. Thank you very much and goodbye. <laughs>